Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome to another episode of Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for premium subscribers. And as always, I appreciate your support. The Roswell incident is possibly the most investigated and controversial UFO case in history. There are no shortages of beliefs and opinions to the actual events of this unusual happening. Dozens of corroborated witnesses and hundreds of professed witnesses have been interviewed, each with their varying degree of credibility. In Roswell, the After Action Report, veteran police detective Greg Lawson uses forensic statement analysis and his thousands of hours of training and experience to review the cultural influence, historical context, and eyewitness testimony of those closest involved. The results of his review prove once again citizens should always be skeptical of those in charge. Greg is a 30-year law enforcement officer, professional investigator, police academy, and collegiate educator, and former expert witness for the state in reference to investigative procedures. He also researches and investigates human paranormal experience and locations known for spiritual or unusual activity. He's the author of five books, including Detecting Paranormal, Zombie Advocacy, the Disorient Express, How to Be a Paranormal Detective, and his latest, Roswell, The After Action Report. Hey, Greg, welcome. How are you? Hey, thanks so much, man. I'm doing really well. Hey, congrats on the new book. Thanks. I'm really excited about it. Uh, got some good feedback so far, so we'll see. And, and, and you know, with any topic on Roswell, uh, any feedback is good feedback. So. Absolutely. <laughs> You're speaking to the uninitiated here. What is an after-action report? So an after-action report is something that the military or the uh, or like civilian law enforcement will do. Uh, usually, it's a report after they conduct some sort of training. So um, they uh, create some sort of uh, uh, scenario that they're going to work on, and they. Uh, they brief on what they're going to do, then they send their people out to do it, and then they come back and they debrief it. And out of that debriefing, somebody will be assigned to do uh, an after-action report, and that after-action report identifies what we did, how we did it, and uh, what are, are the lessons learned out of what we did. So right. in, in in theory, you know, I mean, I, I've already got some, some uh, military folks uh, – you know, asking me questions like, this really isn't an after-action report. I'm like, eh, it's an after-action discussion. <laughs> so <laughs> I did, you know, I didn't want to write, it would have been really easy. It would have been a lot easier to do an after-action report. It's usually about 10, 12 pages, something like that, you know, and uh, here's what we did. Here's, you know, the observations we made and here's what we learned out of it. And this is how we're going to fix this next time. Um, but Roswell's a little bit more in-depth than that. Right. Some have called it a swamp. <laughs> talking about in depth, uh, why? So why the decision to re-enter the Roswell incident? I mean, pr pretty well trodden territory. Uh, where, oh, was it, there it, any any uh, you know anyone saying, Greg, you sure you really want to do this? Oh, a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, because you know anybody that uh, steps off into Roswell. Uh, and has any other kind of uh, opinion or idea or whatever, um, they can just stand by to get pummeled by every direction, you know. And uh, um, I, you have the true believers and the true unbelievers, I call them. And uh, I, I float around someplace in between. I'm not a cynic to Roswell, but I'm not a true believer either. The... You know, you, you get into looking at a cold case, uh, and this thing was, uh, you know, 30-plus years old before Stan Freeman stepped back in and started asking some uh, some questions and kind of shedding some more light on it. Uh, and so right there, you know, it was a, a huge problem. And then um, you have all the people that want to get involved, and whether they were involved to begin with or not. So you have to sift through all these uh, um, hoaxers that come in and, and want to be a part of the story for, for a, a whole, you know, various reasons. 
So, yeah, a lot of people said, what are you doing? But I, you know, I've been going up to Roswell for about, I don't know, it's been about 15, 17 years, something like that. Uh, go to a lot of the uh, uh, the conventions, the UFO conferences, and I kind of just sit back in the corner and listen and eat my chili dog and drink my big red soda and <laughs> try to try to take in uh, uh, what seems to be good information and call out what seems to be, you know, not relevant information. And, uh, man, I, I pile, I have a pile of books or I had a pile of books on my bedside table and on my desk, I kept collecting more and more research, more and more research. And my wife was really on me. Why don't you just write the thing and get it over with? And I'm, I'm just kind of shaking my head going, I don't know whether I want to, like you said, step off into the swamp. So I'll shut up at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's too late to talk you out of writing it now. Um, oh. So, I mean, you have a background, obviously, 30 plus years in law enforcement. You have a background in the military. So how did you utilize your, your, your experience in interrogation and investigation to help you sift through this evidence? So, you know, I, I very much admire many of the uh, investigators that have, uh, have done the real work and have been doing the real work, uh, you know, from the 80s until now and, and continue doing it. Um, there, there's a lot of people out there that say, you know, just shrug their shoulders. Look, it was mogul balloon. That's it. Let's move on. Uh, why do you keep revisiting this? And I revisit it because I'm really interested in whether or not something more than a balloon crash happened out there. And so I, I, I worked in a lot of different fields in law enforcement. I worked as a mental health officer, as a hostage negotiator, as a SWAT guy, as an underwater recovery uh, uh, scuba diver, as a boat patrol officer, as uh, you know, as a detective in in child abuse, homicide, and uh, and other persons and property crimes. And I kind of sit back and you know I, I read through these books and I highlight things and I you know, put little tabs on them. And I, I'm, I'm, I got to that point. I feel like I'm that, that uh, crazy guy in the X-Files down in his mom's basement with all these pictures on the wall and, you know, her, her knitting string going from, you know, place to person to thing to, to uh, situation. And man, it will drive you insane if you follow all of the rabbit holes in the Roswell saga, right? And so for a, um, a local law enforcement guy, I work uh, uh, at the county level uh, and I've been doing it for a long time. Like you said, we do not have the, uh, the ability to assign, you know, 10 people to do research on this and to develop a task force and, uh, to interview all these, you know, even in a murder case, we don't have that. We don't have those luxuries. And so what we're really good at is incident management and uh, case management. So we'll take a case uh, and we have to concentrate on the best evidence that we can get as opposed to a lot of evidence. So, you know, it's, it's, it's quality versus quantity. Right. And in my experience, that's one of the things that is really important is whether or not you have training in interviewing people that uh, uh, are supposed witnesses, victims, suspects or whatever. I always go back to kind of explain something that you really have to watch out for is I, I give the example of a case study called the yogurt shop murders here in Austin, Texas. Um there were three girls that were found in a yogurt shop that had burnt down. Uh, and when they were sifting through the rubble, they found these employees, these, these, uh, four girls, uh, in the subsequent investigation, which went for many years, over 40 people, 40 human beings came forward and said, I was the one that raped and murdered and 
burn these girls. I mean, I was shocked by that. Why why would people yeah. do that? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a phenomenon. It's a it's a weird um psychological thing that somebody wants so bad to be a part of something or notarized notarized recognized for something that they will go to i mean you know the, the people uh, admitted to doing uh, to to killing john benet ramsey it's the same thing it's like okay now you're you're the investigator and you're trying to conduct your investigation and you got all these knuckleheads stepping in and saying they they're the ones that did it well this is not a phenomenon just for uh you know, Austin, Texas, it's not just for Boulder, Colorado. It's for everywhere. Including Roswell. People, absolutely, especially Roswell. Um, and and I like I said, I I really do respect and I like a lot of the investigators that ha- have really done the work. I mean, I I sat back and I just read what they wrote. Um, I I've interviewed a couple of people. Uh, that may or may not have had anything to do with it. I had very, very good conversations with Jesse Marcel Jr. Um, I uh, and, and I sat back and I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to do with this? You know, uh, Kevin Randall has done uh, so much on this. I'm like, okay, and and then you you look at uh, Kerry and Schmidt and uh, Freeman, and you, you just keep going and going. Yeah, seven hundred plus guys- witnesses. Yeah, these guys have done so much more than what we would do in a murder investigation. You know, just uh, interviewing everybody, canvassing everything. You know, people are always talking about canvassing the neighborhood. It's rare that we canvass the neighborhood for the simple fact we don't have the cops to do it. We don't have the the su- support to do it. Uh, we we go to the the closest ones that we think might have something to, to some good information, and we move on. So. You know, when I'm looking at all this stuff and I had read uh, the Roswell report of, you know, from the Air Force years ago. And I was uh, I was a little irritated by it because it reminded me of an internal affairs investigation. And for for those who are sitting out there listening that have never been through an internal affairs investigation, if you don't get PTSD from your job, you'll get PTSD from an internal affairs investigation. Right. Hmm. What they do is they get the complaint and then they do their little rudimentary investigation through, you know, doing computer searches and, you know, uh, evidence and stuff like that. And they'll interview some people and then they will print up every report you did that year, every uh, uh, place your car got gassed up, uh, you know, all of your off-duty jobs, all this. And they will print this document that's a thousand pages long. And so when you go into the internal affairs unit, you sit down, they will always pull out one or two big, you know, three ring binders and dump them on the desk. Those are all their facts, right? It's very impressive when you do that. And, you know, but once you start calling through it, there's about four or five pages that matter. The rest of the stuff is just a bunch of fluff, gibberish. It's all theater. Oh, it's all theater. And so I'm looking at the uh, the report from the Air Force, and I start looking at it, and it's like 98% of what's in that report has nothing to do with what happened out there. You know, it's it's they got some documents, uh, uh, you know, from some scientists. They got some documents from other people, and they, they put it all together, and they packaged it all up, and you got 990-something pages uh, which probably, um, uh, you know, 23 of those pages matter. They might, I don't know. Um, and, and so I, I go in and I look and, and look at the way that they did the transcripts. Um, you know, they edited the transcripts. That's something you never do. Right. It's not uh, a statement. A tran- it's, a, it's a, it's a transcript as opposed to a statement, which is an important right. distinction. Right. And so you, you go in there and, and, something you 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 asked me as far as uh what do i have that's that's different than let's say other investigators well i do have a a lot of experience in talking to people and i know they have a lot of experience in talking to people also but i also have a background in um studying 
how people respond to things. Um, there's a, there's a, a little thing called a, a, a gratification, uh, smile that happens and it's, and it's inadvertent. Most people can't even help doing it. And most people don't realize they do it. Um, you could go on a, a, an example of this. You can go onto YouTube and look up, uh, Bill Clinton's denial of Monica Lewinsky, oh, right? Classic. And he, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's sitting there pointing at the camera saying, I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. That is false. And I got to get back to doing, you know, the work of the people or whatever. Watch when he turns. There's the gratification smile. I pulled it off. <laughs> it, it, Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and, and so I remember watching the, the interviews of some of these uh, uh, Air Force officers. And and this happening, I'm just like, oh my God, I got to get back into this. So I go back in and I, I'm, I'm reading Moore's uh, state or Moore's transcript and then his statement. And I'm going back and forth on this stuff. And he was project engineer on Mogul, right? Yeah, yeah. And and the, the crazy part about that was, is, is in the interview, he's saying, look, this happened a long time. It was 50 years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, they just keep hammering him with, with these, uh, with these questions. And the, and the interesting thing is if you can keep from losing your mind and you go in and you decide to read this thing, uh, and you read how the air force asked questions, typically they didn't ask questions. Typically, uh, they made a long rambling statement, uh, kind of a briefing of what they feel is going on and then would maybe have some sort of uh someplace for you to fill in the blank or uh some convoluted you know uh uh question and just for some context for for listeners the the purpose this interview with with the project engineer and mogul was from the air force's objective was basically to confirm what they set out to prove which was that this was uh an experimental surveillance balloon uh, and they were speaking to the project engineer, and they were, I guess, bound and determined to get him to basically confirm that that's what it was. Oh, a- absolutely. And and that's the funny thing is, you know, I mean, they, they would use uh, statements like, um, you're familiar with the literature of the various crash sites. So one site, two site, three sites, and all that craziness. <laughs> craziness, yes. Right. So, you know, here, here's this. 70 plus year old man sitting in, in front of, you know, two officers of the air force that are representing the air force. Uh, and you know, th- using techniques like that is what you do a- as an interviewer to use that sort of thing. It's you put the position, you put that person into a position of intimidation by making him feel foolish. If he disagrees with you, it's a tactic, right? So, you know, you, you throw in something silly, like, uh, all that craziness and, you know, the, the professor, you know, professor Moore's sitting there with his, you know, he's in his seventies and 50 years of, uh, of memories and, and stuff that probably wasn't episodic to begin with, you know, they're just launching balloons out there. Right. So you don't remember each balloon that you launch out of there. It's, it's, it's not an important memory. You're just, you know, gathering data. So, you know, I I sit back and I I look at a lot of the stuff that uh, the way that the air force came about it and, or came about their, uh, their questioning. And, you know, I don't, I truly don't know what happened out in Roswell. I don't know. Uh, the, the, it's one of those uh, things I think it's still to be determined. Um, reasonable people would say, you know, the most likely scenario is something secret crashed out there. We recovered some of it. They tried to cover it up and they went on. Uh, but because of the way that uh, article came out in the paper to, to begin with, it created a big stir. And it makes you wonder how in the world would Colonel Blanchard, who's in charge uh, of the airbase out there, how in the world he would let, you know, we captured a flying saucer, uh, get out in the paper, which of course you can look into that too. And that's not what their press release was. Right. The, flying the disc versus a flying yeah. saucer. 
And and and, right. and Blanchard after uh, uh, after the incident goes on leave. I mean, this if, yeah. if it was in fact you know one of the most pivotal moments in human history, being visited uh, from another planet by extraterrestrials, and he leaves the responsibility to handle this to his underling, and then goes on leave. Yeah. <laughs> and then shortly after, as you point out in the book, is you know his his military career is kind of takes off. It's meteoric after that. It's incredible after that. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, but you know, when you got to leave to burn, you got to leave to burn, man, you got to go. <laughs> Even though you have, uh, aliens running around out there in the desert. Uh, but it's, you know, when you ask a question, like the way they ask it, as far as the, the pop, you know, are you familiar with the popular literature, uh, of the various crash sites and you add in your, you know, your opinion, uh, the, the, the way that they, if you're conducting a professional inquiry, you're not adding in your own opinions. You're not adding in additional information that you already know. Uh, you're you're contaminating your witness. You're leading your witness. You're coaching your witness. You're doing whatever you want to call it. And, you know, some people would say, well, these guys just weren't really good at their job. Well, they were pretty high-ranking officers. Uh, and I would rather say that they were uh, intentionally doing it the way they did it as opposed to being incompetent. So I have to go with, they had the plan to go in here and get this thing wrapped up, shut up and move on either because they had additional stuff to hide or they just felt like it wasn't worth their time. Um, but it's what, uh, you know, uh, have you read, uh, um, uh, Colonel Weaver's uh, new book, Backstory. No, I haven't. Roswell. No, I have not. Okay, he 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 he. Uh, he I think it self published uh, a book. It's pretty extensive, um, but it was it was it, some of the stuff that he says in it makes complete sense to me. He says uh, in this one part, he says clearly we had to do better than a snarky but true response in order to answer the congressman's request however goofy it was <laughs> now that is could you imagine a a, a police officer going and and you're you're reporting uh you know a burglary of your house and he just rolls his eyes like oh okay well you know you sure you didn't owe somebody some money or you know well, what are you doing this is horrible the, the, the way that uh, they they went about this. They the Air Force had a responsibility to go in there and conduct a professional investigation. Uh, they wouldn't have been able to satisfy everybody. Everybody knows this, but they still had, uh, you know, they should have done their due diligence and conducted a proper investigation, recorded it properly, had the transcriptions done properly, had the, the statements were all done. Typical military. Uh, you, you know, formatted statements. Um, that, but that's fine. That's what they were. They were getting down to the nuts and bolts of what they wanted this person to swear on. Uh, but the point is to to get them to that point. They filled them full of a a bunch of additional information that they had that the witness didn't. Is amazing. Mm -hmm. Just going back and forth and reading that is just absolutely amazing. Right. So the the uh, the first uh, Roswell report ninety four fact versus fiction. Uh, I guess that's when they interviewed some of the engineers on the Mogul project, and then '95 Roswell case closed. Um, to what extent uh, have the some of the investigators over the years, citizen journalists and amateurs and and uh, and professionals, I suppose, uh, been guilty of the same types of interrogation uh, or or investigative errors? Yes, but. I, I will I will put a caveat in there. They're not uh, trained to to conduct an investigation. Most of these guys have never worked as a private investigator, never worked as a criminal investigator, never worked as a a, a paid for uh, you know journalist. Journalists, uh, a lot of journalists are, are a lot better than a lot of uh, cops out there. Um, so when you're going off the seat of your pants. Uh, you can make mistakes. And the, the question is, is it an honest mistake or is it a manipulative mistake? Are, are you being uh, deceitful or trying to hoax 
that that's the real question or are you just kind of hoping uh and and trying to spur along somebody to uh, agree that it's more or less than than what it actually is people um a lot of people think about expert witnesses. You know, this is an expert witness. Well, an expert witness. I was a certified expert witness for the county for years, and what what that entails is you have an academic background in whatever it is you're talking about. So you have an academic background, in other words, a, a bachelor's or a master's degree in something. Uh, then you have uh, the technical or vocational training to work that particular job, whatever it is. Uh, then you have the experience, let's say five, 10 years experience actually doing the job. Uh, and then you have a couple of years experience in teaching what you're about to say that you're an expert in. So there's a lot of guys out there, you know, they, uh, um, they have a GED and they go and work, um, uh, a license and wait for uh, uh, some law enforcement agencies. And then they start billing themselves out as expert witnesses for trucking companies because they worked, you know, five years weighing trucks on the side of the road. Sure. That's, that's not really an expert witness. That's, that's more along the lines of, uh, uh, um, you specialize in a particular thing. You're not an expert. You're not going to be able to tell them, uh, you know, uh, uh, the formula for the speed going up onto the scales and how that you have to calibrate that. You're not going to be able to, to give them the math out of it. An expert witness would be able to go back and, and actually give them the math to do that. So when you're talking about just being a, a specialist in something that's, that's different. So to answer your question, yes. Um, there have been a lot of investigators out of there, especially a lot of conspiracy theory guys, though, the far, far, far conspiracy theory guys that I, I was accused. I was accused at two different places of working for bass. Um, for, for those who don't know what bass is anyway, it, it would be, a, I would be a, a contractor for the government, uh, hiding secrets and doing all kinds of secret stuff. Well, it, I had bass behind my name because I'm, I have a Bachelor of Applied Arts and Sciences. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, they're, and they're, they're writing articles and saying stuff that I'm working for bass and all this. I'm like, what in the hell are these guys doing? <laughs> you know, so that, that was the other thing. You know, when you first said, do I want to wade off into the swamp? It's like, oh, my God, you just get attacked from every side. And the good thing is most of the attacks are you know, just pretty much fabricated for fabrications or, or misinterpretations of, you know, something they heard or said or yeah. whatever. The, the UFO, so just, the, the, the UFO arena sort of reminds me of Yugoslavia post Tito. <laughs> it's, it's just nothing but attacks trying to assassinate everybody. Is that what you mean? Well, just kind of balkanized and, you know, everybody's fighting each other. And I mean, it was yeah. a horrible mess, tragic, but, um, well, yeah. you know, it, it, the yeah. balkanization. But let's, let's take a specific example in terms of the way testimony uh, has been viewed. And, you know, anyone who, who listened to, to, um, Glenn Dennis, uh, the mortician who worked at Ballard's funeral home, and his I mean, very compelling stuff. I mean, talking about an, receiving an order from the uh, the uh, Army airfield for a number of child-sized coffins and and uh, dry ice to pack bodies in, and and so forth. Um, and you have him listed sort of as among the, the hoaxers, right? What? How did you, I mean, because Glenn Dennis is no longer with us, I mean, did you speak with him or were you working off of uh, statements or interviews on YouTube or how did you approach that? Yeah, so I, I, I do a lot of work with um, uh, interpreting evidence for paranormal events. And so somebody will uh, talk about a particular thing happening uh, and uh, let, let's say they say, uh, you know, they saw a full bodied apparition, uh, and they said it was, you know, they were here to tell them that, uh, they needed to go and, 
uh, you know, profess on the corner that, you know, ghosts are real and we need to be saved and all this stuff. Uh, and then you find out that that person uh, is diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. Um, at what point do you say his experience was nothing more than a paranoid uh, delusion or a, a hallucination <clears throat> or not? Because things can happen to a paranoid schizophrenic just the way they can happen to us. So that's that's the problem is defining where uh, lies the truth, right? And so with Glenn Dennis, uh, he was interviewed by so many different people. Uh, you can go back in and kind of uh, do a rundown of what he said and what he didn't say and uh, the way that he changed much some of his testimony. Uh, and then uh, the whole debacle with the nurse. At what point? So I, I've worked murder cases before where um, uh, the suspects uh, end up going to prison for the rest of their lives for 200 years, right? Um, and I don't know what in the world happened. I know this person killed them, but I don't know how or where or when or what. Uh, we just know that they did. Uh, and the reason I'm saying uh, we don't, I don't know what actually happened is because they told me so many stories and changed their story so many times uh, trying to cover their tracks that you just shrug your shoulders and go, all right, well, I got videotape of them in the car with the victim transporting the victim after the victim was dead, uh, you know, from a street camera and some private business and a toll toll road. Uh, you can see the body, you know, the, the person slumped over the front seat and we know that they did this and uh, along with some other circumstantial evidence. And so that's kind of where most investigators would be with Glenn Dennis. When you lie to me three, four, five times about uh, a particular incident uh, or, or series of incidents and you keep changing, at what point me as a professional investigator, do I have the uh, due diligence to say, okay, I can no longer take your testimony as credible. You mentioned the debacle with the nurse. Again, just uh, for, for listeners, this was a nurse he supposedly met outside of the uh, a building at the uh, Army uh, Airfield Base. She was distraught and I believe claimed that she had just witnessed an autopsy and said, don't go in there. And, and uh, then she later mysteriously vanishes. Right. Yeah. And then uh, when that's tracked down, he says, well, she she got transferred and she got transferred overseas and then try to get a hold of her there. Uh, and then he says, well, she was killed in an airplane crash. Well, that's real easy to find out. <laughs> and so uh, do that. And there's there's no airplane crash. There's no, uh, uh, you know, nurse named this. And uh, then the then he changes the name, says, well, I was just trying to cover for her. And it's just a mess. And at, at a, there's a certain part that where you just shrug your shoulders and go, man, um, you know, you're one of the only people that came forward and said these specific things. Uh, you know, you don't have a lot of supportive evidence until mm -hmm. after, you know, like everybody else, after 1978, after, after you know, the, uh, the late 80s when uh, uh, the Unsolved Mysteries show came out. And you get to that point where it's like, okay, um, there's too many inconsistencies. There's, there, there's too many changes of testimony. There's a point to where I can't put this person in front of a jury, uh, because they're uncredible. Um, so I, I, and I really liked his story too. Don't get me wrong. It, it breaks my heart, man. Cause I, you know, it, it's so compelling. Like you said, you know, you're, you're a young guy working a funeral, uh, home and you get this call and it's mysterious and, uh, you know, and just, he, he, he just so happens to be at so many places during this, this event. It's just kind of miraculous. You know, he, he's the one that gets the call that he wants. He's the one that goes to the, uh, the base and, you know, there's just a lot of details there that it's just perfect. You know, 
this one's going to be a tough one, I think, for a lot of people. It would have been a tough one for the late Honorable Paul Hellyer, who read Colonel Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, and, and that he sort of cites reading that book as sort of changing the trajectory of his life. And then he called some, I guess, former colleagues when he was defense minister up here in Canada and, and uh, the voice on the other line, I guess it was a, an Air Force general, said, everything you read in Corso's book is true and more. I mean, Hellyer repeated that line over and over and he, you know, genuinely, genuinely I think, believed it. So what is the problem with uh, Colonel Philip Corso. So, um, for, for what it's worth, man, I would love to be wrong about Corso. <laughs> so I, let me get on, on the record as saying, I want to be wrong about, uh, about his, his story. Um, I wish he would have lived just a little bit longer so he could have been interviewed a couple of times uh, on his book. Uh, I read his book. I, I, I read it. And then I read portions of it, uh, over and over again. Um, it, it falls a little bit in, you know, he's, he's got a decent, uh, uh, military history. He's got a better military history than I do. I, I was enlisted. So I, I can't say that, you know, I had some sort of huge special thing. I had, uh, you know, some really basic clearances and did some cool stuff, but, nothing on the level of what he did. Uh, and so when, when you go in and you look at the timelines of when he was assigned to, to different units and when he would have had access to uh, any material that may have been collected out in the desert uh, and to then research it, uh, decide what it does and then disseminate it. Uh, so, uh, private enterprise can then, you know, move forward with, uh, developing technologies out of it. It's a real tight timeline. Then that's that I, I can't see that happening in a couple of months. Right. And he was claiming uh, to know, working, uh, working the, uh, the foreign technology division, I guess at Wright Pat and, and was there when, when the Roswell wreckage came in and witnessed it, I guess what being back engineered and so forth. Right. And but uh, his military records show that he wasn't assigned in that position. Um, he was assigned in a position there, but not just not long enough to do all the stuff that he was talking about doing. I just shake my head on the whole thing. And, I, and don't get me wrong. I, I really want it to be true. <laughs> I really do. Uh, and, and I, uh, if he was standing here, I'd say, I apologize. I just don't buy your story. I don't buy it. Um, it's, um, th there's been too many people, to, too many researchers out there that have looked into, uh, the claims that he's made and it just doesn't fly. All right. Um, so that, that brings us to. Major Jesse Marcel, intel officer at the 509th Bomb Group. He goes out to Foster Ranch uh, and picks up some material. He helps with some other individuals from, uh, from the 509 load it into a truck. He takes some of it home. He says it's not of this earth. He lets his wife and his 11-year-old child uh, examine it. Um, later he's summoned to Fort Worth with the, uh, the wreckage on the, at the behest of, uh, General Roger Ramey and, uh, feels betrayed because he leaves the office for a moment, comes back and the wreckage has been replaced with a weather balloon and he's expected to stand there and pose, uh, with it and basically ordered to, to, uh, to remain silent for the rest of his life. Right. What do we do with Jesse Marcel? Yeah, so there's a lot of controversy. Uh, uh, well, not a lot. There, there's controversy surrounding Jesse Marcel. The, the issue is, one, uh, there's not a reasonable person in their right mind that would sit there automatically and go, oh, yeah, you know, you could easily mistake a, a, a weather balloon for a spaceship. <laughs> you know, just, that's not going to happen. So, 
I'm going to take his word that this material that he found uh, was something he had never seen before. Could it have been man-made? I, I guess so. Uh, it also could have been an outer skin of a craft that hit at high impact, uh, very high velocity, and it stripped off some of the outer portions of that. And then the vehicle then, you know, flew another few miles and crashed in a different location. You know, you can go up to the, you know, the um, crash at Corona idea of, uh, of Stanton Freeman that, uh, you know, maybe this was just an, a, uh, an impact area where the vehicle skipped off the ground and then landed in a, in a different location. And that's where the recovery was. Um, that is a, a uh, um, I think that's a plausible hypothesis. Uh, there's not a lot of, uh, of well, there's that we don't have any evidence of that other than testimonial evidence of this particular material, right? So he collects this stuff up. The, the, the questions end up falling is, uh, okay, this is, um, a, a lot of the investigators will say, these men were the best of the best, right? They were with a 509th bomb wing, the only nuclear capable unit in the world at that time. You know, a lot of people harp on that. Um, I've been in the military. Uh, I've been in some pretty um, uh, important I've worked around some pretty important positions. Uh, and some of the guys that were in charge of those positions were knuckleheads. <laughs> you know, <they're>, they were <laughs> That instills very, confidence. <laughs> yeah, they were, oh my God, man. I, I, yeah, I, I don't want to, I don't want to go there. But the, the um, when you assign, let's say on a, on a uh, Navy ship, uh, on an aircraft carrier, uh, you have what's called a tactical action officer, and he's kind of the guy that sits in the combat direction center and runs the battle of the ship. Okay, not not the aircraft, but the battle of the ship, what the ship is doing. Uh, next to him is what's called a SWIC, uh, a, a ship's weapons coordinator. Uh, his job is to coordinate all of the weapons that are on the ship, missiles and uh, um any kind of torpedoes or anything like that, that they may have on the ship. And that's his job to uh, prioritize where they're going to go is in reference to where the en enemy is an aircraft carrier that those two guys are typically two guys that they're getting out of the air force. They were, they've been pilots and they didn't get good evaluations and they make them not pilots and they send them over there to be in charge of stuff. <laughs> it's like, wait, you, you, you're getting rid of these guys. They they don't. It's called a fit rep. The uh, their evaluation that they have, they don't get a good fit rep, so they get removed as a pilot uh, and kind of just put in a position until they leave the navy, and that's the position they put them in. It's just kind of an odd thing. You'd think that there'd be a really specialized guy that's sitting as the ship's weapons coordinator, right? Well, One that's not how that. Yeah, that's not how that works. Uh, it's a, it's a very weird thing. At least that's the way it was 20 years ago. Maybe now they've had, or 30 years ago, maybe now they've fixed all that. Um, uh, does it, doesn't seem like it to me as many ships as they're running aground lately. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know what's going on over there. Um, but I, I sit back and I, and I look at, um, the assignments, uh, that some of these guys had. It's like, okay, you know, that's an important assignment. Marcel had a very important assignment, especially, uh, you know, the, the, the Cold War starting up. They're still, uh, they're, they're still doing the Nuremberg trials. They're still doing trials in Japan. So they're dealing with a lot of uh, treachery. They're dealing with a lot of intrigue and a, a lot of spy stuff going on because uh, everybody is still vying for power now, you know, especially the Soviet Union. So a lot of the really good guys are going to be overseas and a lot of the really good guys are going to be stateside. It's going to be a, a, a mix. Um, the, the thing is you can't say that the best guys were at the 509th bomb wing because typically uh, people get assigned based on open billets, open, an open assignment. Not necessarily I'm going to pull this guy because he's the best. Uh, these guys were really good at what they did. Uh, but 
here you have a, a extra what you think is something extraterrestrial and you're going to take it to your family's house. Right. You're going to bring that thing in and let your kids touch it. Could be contaminated, as you point out. Yeah. Now, I, I don't know, you know, because I, I, I really have a uh, had and have a huge respect for uh, Jesse Jr. He was a really nice guy. Um, salt of the earth. Just awesome guy. Um, and, uh, I've really enjoyed my time that, that I got to spend with him and he believed what his dad believed, um, that his dad was completely confused about what this stuff was and believed that it was not of this earth. And, uh, when they, when they, you, you can see it in the pictures you, and you've, you've pointed out. Uh, you know, he takes this material to, to Ramey, uh, and whatever happens, then they do the, uh, the, the photo shoot, the old switcheroo. <laughs> oh man. The, his face is just like, are you kidding exactly, me? Yeah. What in the world are we doing here? Um, and I remember talking to, uh, uh, to Jesse jr. And he was saying, you know, yeah, when my dad was leaving, he, you know, he knew, he, you know, he was the patsy. He was the fall guy on this whole thing. Uh, he, he knew that from the time he walked out of Ramey's office. Um, the interesting thing is, is, you know, uh, um, Newton's uh, statement, uh, the, the weather officer that came in to identify the balloon. You know, he's like, yeah, it's a weather balloon. It's, yeah, it's a weather balloon. Okay. And then he, he argues a little bit that Jesse Marcel tried to talk him into saying uh, that it was something else with these hieroglyphics, right? Right. Well, I don't believe that happened. I, I just don't believe that happened. I based on what, what Newton, you know, well, what Newton saw was a weather balloon. There's no doubt. I wish, I wish uh, they would have been able to uh, interview. Uh, Colonel DeBose a little bit more, General DeBose uh, when he got out, um, a little bit more to confirm that the old switcheroo happened. I think that he would have, uh, he would have, he would have admitted to that. You know, he was admitting that it was a cover-up to begin with. Right. Let me just, I'm, I'm glad uh, you brought up yeah. General DeBose. Let me just uh, yeah. crib here uh, a quote that, that is in um, the after report after action report rather. And uh, this is DeBose. It was a cover story, the balloon part of it. It's the story to be given to the press and that is the end. And McMullen, if you ever knew him, you told him. Uh, McMullen told me, you are not to discuss this. This is a point in which this is more than top secret. It's beyond that. It's within my priority as deputy to George Kenny and he in turn responsible to the president. This is the highest priority you could exhibit and you will you will say nothing. And that was the end of it. What is, as you point out, what's more than top secret? What in the world? You know, and people will say, well, all these guys, go, well, you know, there's a lot of uh, layers above top secret. Well, yes, there, there's some, some specialty stuff above top secret, yes. But that's not what DeBose was speaking on. You know, he was saying this is the most important thing it could ever be, and we're not going to talk about it. And it's damn sure not a weather balloon. <laughs> you know, right it, now, now could it be uh, really important that it's a, you know, a project, uh, experimental project mogul balloon? Yeah, but that's not the most important thing because do you think that the Soviets didn't know we were listening to them? Right. I mean, you know, we're, they're not idiots. And even they, if it was, have, even if Mogul was all that, uh, in 94, that's 50 years later, and you go through sort of the declassification process in the book, yeah. uh, that would have been long, long ago that would have been declassified. Yes. It, you know, I mean, we have all kinds of stuff out there that uh, we use for, for surveillance. Uh, and the Soviets or previous when when the soviets were in power they knew all about all that stuff we didn't talk about it but it was uh you know it wasn't general knowledge but it damn sure wasn't the most important thing ever <laughs> you know and so i just don't see i got it man and and the crazy the crazy now you know 
uh, the Air Force talking about and all that craziness. Well, all that craziness is the Air Force not even mentioning DeBose one time in their report. 900-something pages, and they don't mention the guy one time. I mean, the, he, his name is listed in a couple of things. Somebody else mentions him, and they just gloss right over it. Don't even address it at all. <laughs> that right there was the biggest. And I... You know, and I and I cover that in the book. That, in my opinion, was the biggest uh, red flag that the Air Force is whitewashing this thing. Of all of it, not only the condescension of of the way that they talk to people, not not you know, you can go on YouTube and look at the interviews of the Air Force talking about uh, um, you know their report. Uh, and the little gratification smiles that they're doing and the condescending, they're, they're just looking at you going, what are you going to do? Yeah, this is what we said it is. What are you going to do about it? And, you know, when, when they were talking to Professor Moore and he says, I need to say here, I need to qualify or you need to qualify everything that I say uh, with a memory of almost 50 years ago. I will say things that are the best of my memory. Well, the Air Force guys follow up with a 97-word, five-point statement consisting of no less than five combined questions. <laughs> the, this 70-plus-year-old uh, guy is going, hey, man, I'm an old man. Can you slow down a little bit? Um, and, you know, let's, let's talk about this. And then they just barrage him. Uh, with this crazy statement over it. And I'm, I'm sitting there reading this going, okay, this can't be out of incompetence. It has to be by, either by design or, um, you know, m maybe everybody went drinking the night before and just aren't thinking real good <laughs> at, at this point. So, uh, so on, on the one hand, you've got, you've got the Glenn, you've got Glenn Dennis and you've got Colonel Phil Corso and you've got, I think, you know, a, a, a genuine, well-meaning, honest Jesse Marcel. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got the, the whitewash of the uh, Air Force reports. And then you've got Brigadier General DuBose. So what do we do with these two seemingly sort of disparate factions? I know. Um, so... My conclusion, if I if I had a conclusion, my conclusion is that the Air Force's job was to step in uh, and, you know, oversee an investigation to this. Uh, if your if your sister in law is accused of murder and you're a cop, are you going to uh, be assigned to <laughs> to? You know, conduct that uh, that investigation? Probably not. If you are, your responsibility is to recuse yourself of that investigation. Um, the Air Force had a responsibility to conduct this investigation uh, in, in an objective way, in a professional way, uh, documenting everything, because they knew that they were going to get attacked, like anybody who writes anything about Roswell gets attacked. Uh and they failed, man. They they absolutely their documentation was horrible. Uh, the the report is full of a bunch of fluff with all this, you know, uh, you know, all kinds of memorandum and everything copied and thrown in there that really don't doesn't have anything to do with anything. And then they completely disregard Debose. Uh, they you know, kind of uh, brush uh, Marcel aside, just kind of roll their eyes at him. And, you know, it, it would have been so much better uh, if they would have looked at it as a, uh, a a more objective way and maybe recused themselves since they were the suspect in this, right? Right. Excellent <laughs> <They're>, point. <laughs> yes. They're the suspect in, you know, if this was a crime, which it wasn't, but if this was a crime, they were the suspect. And now we empower them to conduct their own investigation. That doesn't fly with me, man. That doesn't work. And the way they went about it, as smug as they were, uh, you know, uh, 
So when they went and talked to uh, Tchaikovsky. He's the other uh, mo uh, mogul engineer, right? Engineer, yeah. Um, so here, here he is. He was a, a, a colonel at that back then. He's retired. They, they're going to go talk to him. Um, they start off the uh, um, they start off their questioning with, "We have concluded independently from a, from several other researchers the fact that Mogul is probably responsible for the so-called Roswell incident. The Air Force position on that is that it was a misidentified balloon after reading now, two million pages." <laughs> That doesn't sound like a question to me. Yeah. And then he goes on and says, Jim has culled through literally millions of various archives and repositories. Well, uh, yeah, I did the math. If we just do 1 million, he's got to read 110 pages a day, uh, 40,000 pages a year for 25 years in order to equal 1 million. So here's this colonel sitting down in front of this old retired guy basically saying don't question us uh you know we've done incredible amount of work here now i don't care whether um they had you know a team of 20 people they did not call through two million documents they not even do with it. not even with the evelyn wood speed reading course <laughs> no there's no way there's no way you know it's and and, and i'm i'm sitting there looking from my perspective, I'm a guy that has studied ways to uh, interview, interrogate, and cross-examine people. So there are techniques to that, uh, and there are specific things that you do, and there's words for those that describe it. It's it's laid out, and when you use you know uh, manipulative exaggeration to somebody, you do that in order to suppress any objection they may have so here i am a colonel in uniform sitting in front of you and say i've looked through two million pages of archives we know what's going on it's the mogul balloon you know you're sitting in your living room going well i watched tv about it one time i guess <laughs> if you say so you know mm -hmm. <laughs> you know uh, uh 50 years ago, I'd put some helium in one of those things and it went, yeah, okay. And, uh, and it's just, it's laughable when, when I sit there and, and, and look at the way that they, and don't get me wrong, whatever position the Air Force has put in to do these invest, this investigation, I damn sure wouldn't have wanted the job because no matter what you did, uh, everybody's going to argue with it, except do a good job at it. Right. And they didn't. You, you, you point out, though, that, um, I mean, clearly there's a cover-up here. DuBose admits to that. He will not reveal, you know, the, the nature of the cover-up, what was being covered up. No. But still, you know, unquestionably an honorable man who, uh, who served his country. Um, we're not left feeling that he's the villain in all this. Right. No. Uh, and, and I put, you know, I, I put it, you know, DeBose is, was one of the conspirators. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Ramey is a conspirator. Uh, Lieutenant Haught is a conspirator. The uh, Colonel Blanchard is a conspirator. Um, and, and, and that's all true. And that's one of the other things that the Air Force, uh, you know, said in, the, in, in some of the, uh, uh, their statements is they were kind of shrugging their shoulders, shoulders saying, yeah, and they still think it's a conspiracy. Well, it was a conspiracy. Uh, it may not have been uh, four aliens in a spacecraft crashed uh, with, you know, people going and recovering the stuff and shipping them the right pat and freezing them in, uh, you know, liquid nitrogen and all that. It, it might not be that, but it certainly was a conspiracy. So that's one of those things that, once again, the Air Force should have said, yes, this is a conspiracy. Uh, this was a mogul balloon. We said it was a, uh, um, you know, just a regular weather balloon. Uh, and uh, we have now declassed all this. Here's all the documents if you want to look at it. Um, here's all the transcripts. You can't edit transcripts. This is, that was driving me insane. I'm sure, I'm willing to bet they have the full transcript someplace. 
um, I, I haven't seen them and, and that doesn't mean anything that they, they could be out there. Um, but what was put out in the public was not proper. Those, those, those aren't considered transcripts. I don't know. They're like notes that they took, uh, along the way, I guess. Um, it, it would have been a, a lot better if they would have done that. It would have been a lot better if, uh, if they would have documented, it much better because even on the uh and the transcripts uh you're you're not always real clear on who is asking the questions and um you know who is actually in charge of it uh, where are they located uh you know the, the way that we do uh an interview is much more detailed in the circumstances that the interview is being given you know are you at the police station or are you standing in front of a police car or you inside your living room all of that stuff matters right right so could could roswell happen now given uh you know different tech people like you out you know uh, sifting through the the evidence and and examining uh interrogations and and investigative techniques and all of this now you know we'd be dealing with you know, people that are still alive. I mean, many of the children of Roswell are now gone, but could Roswell right. happen today? A cover up. So, you know, yes, absolutely. It could. Um, <laughs> there's still, you know, vast amounts of territory and vast amounts of water out there that, you know, we're, we're not sitting and watching. I was an operations specialist, uh, while I was in the Navy. Uh, it, it, there's a saying, you know, uh, uh, in God we trust, all others we track. And uh, I like that. And yeah, and so um, everything that moves in the air, uh, air detection and tracking operations specialists are, are sitting there looking at them. Uh, and we're not just watching one part, we're watching a vast amount of, of air traffic. Uh, and that air traffic is not only in, uh, you know, the envelope of NORAD, but it's outside of the envelope into what would be considered space command. And so these objects, everything that's that's being tracked has a uh, um, assigned signature to it. So it's going to have a, a like a serial number. Everything gets a serial number. And that that includes space debris and satellites and, and the whole bit when new things come into view they get assigned a track number and they get assigned a specific uh um, um plot that's going to watch them and so uh there's still holes in you know in the envelope for sure uh that these things can hit the the, the tic-tac situation that that was uh you know i was assigned on nimitz and uh, uh the the air wing that picked up that tic tac was on nimitz right, right. Uh, they, I, I i was assigned on nimitz many years prior to that uh but um you know you're you're looking at some pretty amazing footage and there's a lot of speculation there's a lot of uh um uh, you know once again true believers and true unbelievers that are looking at that going yeah well you know uh, if that thing was there and they're flying around it and the way that they're flying and I, I can do some trigonometry on that, so a little bit of math on that and show you how it would look like that Tic Tac is moving very fast uh, because of the background when it's actually stationary. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't have that video and i don't have the the officer in front of me and we don't have a maneuvering board and some dividers and you know right. a, a few uh, a few pencils and erasers to figure this stuff out um but that stuff is happening and there's you know whether it's um whether it's something that we're designing or something from outside there's there's all these mysterious things that are happening in the sky today if something crashed out in the middle of nowhere uh, and they went out and recovered it. How would we know about it? Uh, you know, we might not know about it for 20 or 30 years till some old man goes, you know what? I can't live with this anymore. I saw this and here it goes. Um, so I think that we have a lot more electronics now, you, you know, a lot of, uh, murders now are solved from your cell phone, mm -hmm. <laughs> not Amazing. from, not right. from good investigations. 
uh, it's it's from the metadata from your cell phone. Wow, uh, you can, yeah, you can put together a uh, an entire uh, criminal case based on that, or you know, new cars, all the all the new cars out there. You you plug in your cell phone to charge it in a car after 2014 or so. Uh, depending on what kind of chip it has, um, it's going to be downloading that metadata into your car. And so there's all kinds of ways that you can solve these things. So when somebody says, I was out at the Foster Ranch and I recovered this stuff, well, nowadays we just plug in this phone uh, or the car uh, and pull that out. If it was a criminal case, we'd have to have a you know, a subpoena or a search warrant for that information. Uh, that's the problem with stuff like this is, you know, by the time we find out about it, because it's not a criminal case and people aren't, uh, professional investigators aren't automatically assigned to it and trying to figure it out, we'll catch it way after the fact. Um, but hopefully we won't repeat the same uh, mistakes that we made on this one, uh, which is not qualifying your witnesses, not documenting properly. Uh, not getting pictures and audio and video and and putting this whole case together. Um, so hopefully we won't make those mistakes again. Roswell, the after action report. How do we get a copy? Well, uh, it's all over Amazon. Uh, you can go to Amazon and get it. And you can also go to my website, theparanormaldetective.com. Greg, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. I appreciate it. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.